I was tempted to say turn to Genesis 1 just to scare you, but we'll do Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah 1. We're just going to stay in one book tonight. And as we begin Nehemiah, you recall that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah was intended to be one book. The tradition of separating them is so deeply ingrained that they will continue to stay separated in our English Bibles probably forever, or else we'll suddenly have 65 books of the Bible and Bible trivia games everywhere will be rendered obsolete. So we'll be okay with that. The theme I've been highlighting all through Ezra and Nehemiah is the faithfulness of God. That great is thy faithfulness. And already we've seen in so many ways how tremendously faithful God is to His people. We've seen that God keeps His word. God produces obedience. God deserves unconditional trust. God bestows faith-building tests. God encourages through His Word. God works through providence. That's a major theme we'll hit again tonight. God gives joy and accomplishment. God supplies set-apart shepherds. God equips set-apart shepherds. God demonstrates man's shortfall. And God receives humble confession. Tonight, I'd like to highlight the characteristic of God's faithfulness that God moves through prayerful planning. God moves through prayerful planning. And tonight, incidentally, we're also introduced to the man who's prominent in the final 60% of Ezra Nehemiah, and that is Nehemiah himself. Nehemiah, his name means Yahweh gives comfort. He is a Jew. He was a counselor to the Persian king. And he is a godly man. The Lord, over many years, had prepared Nehemiah to be God's instrument to deal with a crisis in Jerusalem, which would turn out to be a confrontation between good and evil. And Nehemiah would be the point of the spear for God's purposes. And Nehemiah shows himself immediately in these two chapters to be a godly man, a man whose faith in the Lord was real and was evident by his actions. Now, just to be watching for this, the undercurrent in this story, we won't spend a lot of time emphasizing it, but the undercurrent in the story in Nehemiah 1 and 2 is a battle between good and evil. And I say it's an undercurrent because the Hebrew word for evil is used five times and the word for good used three times. And so one of the purposes of this text is to show us that these events go deeper than just the hope of rebuilding Jerusalem's walls. But that fundamentally, God's reputation is at stake. There's an invisible battle of good versus evil. But what we'll see more up front here is that for us as Christians in the 21st century, these two chapters are incredibly instructive on how to understand the providence of God, the -the behind-the-scenes working of God to bring about His will in the lives of His people, how the providence of God works. And so the major question is this, Has God ordained that His plans are carried out by means of our own involvement? We sort of touched on that this morning. How involved are we in God's plan? We know that Scripture teaches that God is fully sovereign. I think we hammered that home this morning with a jackhammer. But does God's sovereign will interact with human actions? And if so, how? I think tonight will help us answer that question and give you confidence that God uses your efforts to providentially accomplish His sovereign will. So here's the entire point of tonight's time in the Word. It's just a sentence, and that'll be our outline as well. This is the whole point. Prayer and planning provides the pathway to providence. 
Prayer and planning provides the pathway to providence. That's our outline for tonight. Let's start with the prayer part. Prayer and planning provides the pathway to providence. Let's start with prayer. Nehemiah is going to pray a prayer of desperation. But we need to know the situation that leads him to that prayer. First of all, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So these three verses describe the circumstances leading to the involvement of Nehemiah in the lives and the desperate circumstances of the Jews in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area of Judah. Now remember we saw in Ezra 9 and 10 that the Lord's blessing had been withdrawn from the Jews to a certain degree because they were once again violating covenant with God by intermarrying with the pagan idolatrous peoples all around them. And so what we see here is a three-level disaster. This is terrible. On the first level, Nehemiah asked the representatives who came to him in Susa. Now, Susa was the wintertime capital of King Artaxerxes. He asked about the Jews and by extension their descendants who had returned from exile. And the representative replied that the people were in great trouble and shame. These are words that mean distress, calamity, absolute disaster. And that this calamity had caused the Jews to be a reproach. They were a joke. They were a shame to those all around them, to the people, the enemies of God living around them. The second level of this disaster, the wall of Jerusalem had been broken down. The, the, the gates burned. It means that the temple and the city were totally vulnerable to attack at any time. And they spent, they spent uh, almost a half dozen years rebuilding the temple. And so there's a, a third level of the disaster. Why had the repair of the city walls and gates not commenced? Why had they not started? Well, going all the way back to Ezra 4, we saw a time-lapse picture of various communications from various Persian kings, including, from Nehemiah's standpoint, the present-day Artaxerxes, who had been convinced by Israel's enemies that if the walls and the gates are completed again, then Jerusalem will rebel. And so, although the temple rebuilding had commenced without any more opposition, the walls and the gates, which had been destroyed perhaps a second time even, were still under edict to not be reconstructed. And so, it would take a decree from the king to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem without opposition. Well, Nehemiah understands how grave this situation is. Verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is bowled over by this initial blow of hearing that after all these decades that the Jews have been back in Jerusalem, 80 years or so, they still didn't have a safe city. They were still the object of derision and scorn. They were in danger by the neighboring peoples. And undoubtedly, one of the reasons the Jews had begun, begun intermarrying with the surrounding peoples was out of a sense of desperation. It was a way to keep the peace. You weren't going to be invaded by a, a, a tribe in whom you had a bunch of wives and a bunch of their daughters and back and forth. So Nehemiah sat down. He wept. 
and he mourned for days. He was experiencing intensive grief and it drove him to a time of fasting and prayer. He was driven by this tragedy to the only source of hope and consolation that he had to stop everything else in his life, incidentally including his physical sustenance, and to pray. And here's the prayer of Nehemiah. Verse 5, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the othermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And you get a little note here. Now I was cupbearer to the king. I'm not going to take a lot of time to talk through this prayer because we're going to focus exclusively on this prayer next Lord's Day evening. We're going to look at this in detail. But briefly, what we just saw in Nehemiah's prayer He addresses God as totally sovereign and totally faithful, acknowledging the complete control of God in verse 5. In verses 6 and 7, Nehemiah asks to be heard. He confesses the sins of his people on their behalf. He makes it personal, as if he had personally been guilty of covenant unfaithfulness. In verses 8 through 10, he acknowledges that God had warned Israel in his word of discipline if they are unfaithful, but he also reminds the Lord, as it were, That God had promised that discipline was not God's final plan for Israel. That was not the end game. And in verse 11, based on the unchanging word of God, Nehemiah expresses confidence that the Lord will answer his prayer. Now, since the point of this message is that prayer and planning provides the pathway to providence, and since we understand that the sovereignty of God extends to every detail of everything whatsoever, then the obvious question for us is, if God is sovereign, then why pray and why plan? I think that's a fair question. I'd like to focus on the why pray question. Does prayer actually change things? Instead of viewing this as a question, though, if God is sovereign, why pray? It's better to view this issue as a tension. God is sovereign. You must pray. And you don't try to make them mix. You don't try to make them mesh with one another. They're just simply both true. God is sovereign. You must pray. And so we're going to start by not trying to resolve that tension. Let's just let it stand to the glory of God rather than trying to resolve it in the length of a social media post. That's not possible. Let's let it stand and we'll look at each side separately. On the one side of the tension, God is sovereign. Now I know this is a review from this morning, but... Apparently, God wanted us to really home in on His sovereignty today. So let me show you briefly three ways that God is sovereign. First of all, God decreed creation. 
He decreed creation. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. This word counsel, it means His plans, the things that arise from choices that He makes. These things include things both good and evil, and yet God is never touched by evil, nor does evil ever impact Him. God freely decided in eternity past to create the universe. The decree of creation includes the redemption of sinners. You ready for this? Before there was such thing as sin. That's sovereignty. Ephesians 1, 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. You weren't unholy and you weren't unblameless yet. You weren't even born yet. And yet God chose you. All the events in the universe are included in His plan. There is no asterisk in Genesis 1.1 at the bottom that says, except for such and such. There were no surprises. There were no sudden left turns. There were no adjustments for God. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And so God decreed the creation. The second way God shows His sovereignty is God made the creation. We haven't even gotten to the making of creation yet. Second, God made the creation. When God created all things, He declared it all to be very good. And He has declared His total rights over His creation by virtue of having made it. Romans 9, verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Even broader than this, Romans 9 refers to us as human beings, but Psalm 24.1 refers to everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So God made the creation and as a result it belongs to Him. God decreed the creation, God made the creation, and the third way we see His sovereignty is God governs the creation. He governs the creation. How does He do that? Let me give you four ways He governs the creation. He rules over all creation in a general sense. First of all, Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. And I know that there's the argument that says, boy, it doesn't feel like He's ruling on the earth right now. Trust me, He's ruling on the earth, but He is allowing by His sovereign will the prince of the power of the air to run amok for a time. But God is never out of control. There's no point in all of eternity that God is is wringing His hands going, I can't believe this got out of hand like this. He rules over all creation in a general sense. The second way He rules, He rules over nature. He rules over nature. In Job 37, the young man Elihu Proclaims that God rules over all of nature. The thunder, the lightning, the snow, the rain, the animals, the temperatures. All natural phenomena are under His control. We'll talk about that more in a bit. The third way that He rules, He rules over history. He rules over history. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight: For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. What does that mean? It means that nobody is ever in power without God's design. There there is not a single election in our country where God goes, well, I didn't see that one coming. Never happens. He rules over history. And the fourth way He rules, He rules over your individual lives. He rules over individual lives. Psalm 75, verse 7, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And of course, you're very familiar with Romans 8, 28, 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So scripture clearly depicts God as sovereign. God decreed the creation. God made the creation. God governs the creation. But the other side of that tension, God is sovereign. The other side is you must pray. You must pray. And let me give you two reasons to pray. And these are obvious. The first reason, Scripture commands prayer. We could do what we did this morning. I could read you hundreds of verses about commands to pray. But I'll just give you a few. Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke 6, 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Matthew 6, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Pray without ceasing. This has the idea of, of living a life where you're breathing prayer. You're just constantly in communion with God. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the first reason we must pray is that Scripture commands prayer. But the second reason is that Scripture characterizes prayer. Scripture characterizes prayer. Almost all of the major characters in Scripture are characterized in prayer. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, Daniel, David, Ezra, Nehemiah, Jesus, Paul. The life's work of Dr. Jim Roskup at the Master Seminary, who was my professor of hermeneutics, he spent over 20 years working on his pet project. His pet project was an exegetical study, an exegetical analysis, and essay on every prayer in the Bible. When he finally published it, it took four volumes and 2,584 pages to teach through all the prayers of the Bible. One of the points that he makes in these volumes is that without exception, all the men in the Bible who prayed believed that God was sovereign. Very consistent. So, there's two sides of the tension. God is sovereign and you must pray. So how do you deal with the tension? Well, first of all, we have to say this. It's only a tension from a human standpoint. There's never any tension with God. We simply don't have the spiritual bandwidth to grasp all there is to grasp about God. We saw that in Ecclesiastes 8.17 this morning that no matter how hard you try, you will never wrap your mind around the mind of God. And so we have limited spiritual capability. But if God has planned all that has happened, if God's not going to change his plan, if God knows everything about whatever circumstance you're praying about, and if your prayer is not giving God any new information, and your prayer is not persuading him to a different point of view, then why should you pray? Let me give you two reasons. This doesn't exactly resolve the tension, but at least it gives you enough relief to not worry about it. The first reason is God is all wise and his sovereign plan allows you to trust him. God is all wise and his sovereign plan allows you to trust him. If God's plan was only given in dotted lines and might be altered, then who's to say that you might not have a better idea than God? And in reality, only a God who's all sovereign and all wise can be trusted. And, and don't we love to fall back on Romans eight twenty six that the, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us? 
Lord, I would like money. And the Holy Spirit says, what he means is he would like to be driven into the degradation of poverty so that he learns to trust you. And that the Spirit of God intercedes for us. And yet, though the Holy Spirit intercedes, we're expected to pray. God is all wise and the sovereign plan allows you to trust Him. There's a second reason. God rules His creation primarily through secondary causes. God rules His creation through secondary causes. Why is the earth rotating around the sun? Because God started it. And it goes according to the laws of physics, which he set up. A storm is under the, sec- the, sovereignty hand of, the sovereign hand of God, but there are secondary causes to that storm that we can see. Uh, God brought me and my wife together, but there was a secondary cause to that used by God. Prayer is a major, major secondary cause And these prayers are also part of God's decree. God has decreed that you pray for the things that are His will. And then you get into philosophical theology, but, well, what if I hadn't prayed? Well, then that was part of God's decree, and you will live the attendant consequences of not being prayerful. Prayer is a means of accomplishing the outworking of God's decree. The Lord taught us to pray in Matthew 6, "'Your will be done.'" But you remember, he also taught us to ask, give us this day our daily bread. The Lord of the universe who created all things, he said that we ought to ask for something he already knows he's going to give us. Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, she didn't know that God had sovereignly decreed to give her a son named Samuel, but she prayed for a son and he answered that prayer. If I can put it this way, and I hope hope this will resonate with you, Divine sovereignty is the sphere. It's the arena. It's the place. I like arena in which prayer operates. It's not that there's some sort of competition, sovereignty versus prayer. Prayer operates in the arena of divine sovereignty and they work perfectly together. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance to answer you. I know sometimes we like to picture that that God is is reluctant to bless and reluctant to to do what you ask. And you finally convinced Him because He just got tired of you asking all the time. But prayer is not you overcoming God's reluctance to answer. And yet, Jesus told a parable telling us to be persistent in prayer, right? Why? Because that's what He commanded. More accurately, what prayer is, is the process of aligning your heart and mind with God's sovereign plan. That's what prayer is. And what does that do? It creates joy. Jesus said in John 16, 24, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And oh, volumes have been written about what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Half of the things written and preached about this are pure witchcraft. That if you say those words, that it'll make God do what you want. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? This is very, very uh, simple. If you go to somebody else on my behalf, in my name, you automatically and ethically want to do what you believe I would want you to do. To pray in Jesus' name is simply to pray what you believe with all of your heart Jesus would want you to pray. What does that make you do? It makes you think about what you pray. Lord, I believe that you want me to have a 2023 brand new 
Camaro. I would just love that. All right, tell me why Jesus would want that. However, if you pray, Lord, I believe my Savior would be so glorified if you would save all of my children, and that they would all stand before their Savior and remember this prayer that I prayed this day. To pray in Jesus' name simply means to be thoughtful about praying in the will of God. And if you're praying out of the will of God, the Spirit of God will take care of that. That's the prayer part. Our overall thesis is the prayer and planning provides the pathway to providence. Let's look at the, at the planning part now. The planning part. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? About three months after receiving the terrible news, he's in the king's presence. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer. He was the one who took wine to the king. But you have to keep in mind that the cupbearer was much more than just a servant or a waiter. He was considered to be a valued counselor and extremely trustworthy. Why was he extremely trustworthy? Because the cupbearer could kill the king. The cupbearer was charged with tasting the wine and tasting the food right before it was served to the king to ensure it wasn't poisoned. So on the one hand, if he's a bad man, he could kill the king. But in most cases, he was considered a good man because he was willing to die for the king. Three, four meals a day, Nehemiah was tasting the food and the wine, going to the king and could die at any moment. Why was this important? Well, history has shown that Persian kings... And high officials died mysterious deaths quite often. And so this put Nehemiah in the coveted position of great trust. And what we see here is that Nehemiah had always been positive. He had always been upbeat and jovial in the king's presence. But the king noticed that Nehemiah seemed downcast. But there's a little bit more than meets the eye here. The word translated in our Bibles, why is your face sad, literally means evil. Why is your face evil? That Nehemiah had never seemed to have evil intentions toward the king. And so the king asked why for the first time ever Nehemiah had this evil look on his face. Now, yes, it seems that the king is concerned for Nehemiah, but frankly, emperors are by nature first and foremost concerned about three people, me, myself, and I. That's it. And so the king, what we see here, is very perceptive. He asked, why the evil look? Why the sad look? This is a dangerous moment. If the king even thought that Nehemiah's face was betraying some sort of evil intention toward him, the king could have had him executed on the spot. Do you notice at the end of verse 2 that Nehemiah was very much afraid? And do you notice Nehemiah's first words? Let the king live forever. That's a good start. That tells you that, okay, everything's okay. So Nehemiah explains to him that his sad expression wasn't a result of evil directed toward the king. It was a result of evil which had come upon his people. So it is a response to evil. And you notice the tactic of Nehemiah here. He doesn't mention the city. And he emphasizes that this is the place where his ancestors were buried. 
Why does he not mention Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem continued in, in Persian circles to be characterized as a rebellious city. That's why the walls hadn't be re, been rebuilt. That's why the gates weren't rebuilt. And so he doesn't mention the city. He just says, the city where my ancestors are buried. And that's the second thing he emphasizes. Why would he say that? The Persians had a very soft spot for venerating not only their own ancestors, but the ancestors of other peoples. Peoples over whom they ruled. The, the idea was, we don't want to take any chances that these ancestors come back as some sort of wicked, ghostly army and wipe us out. So we're going to be nice to everybody who died. And they generally had a policy of maintaining the sanctity of grave sites and tombs, even over peoples they conquered. Now we'll stop here for just a moment. That little fact alone is a tremendous illustration of our whole point that prayer and planning provides the pathway to providence. What Nehemiah does right here. Certainly in his prayers, God had asked, Nehemiah had asked God rather to give the king a compassionate heart. That's his final request today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. But Nehemiah also, no doubt with the Lord's help, had a plan. And that plan was to bring up a topic that would be a soft and tender spot for Artaxerxes. The same is, I was born at night, but not last night. And so he's using some wisdom here. And it seemed that God was working through Nehemiah's prayer and planning. Verse 4, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now thinking back for a moment to Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1, verses 5-11, through 11, this is reflecting two things simultaneously. Certainly, his prayer in chapter 1, 5-11 through 11 is a summary of what he had been praying. Because verse 4 said he prayed for days and days. But also, this is actually a record of what he prayed here in this moment before the king. Did you notice the very last line of Nehemiah's prayer? Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. The, the implication is this man who is right here before me that I could point to. The end of this prayer is a specific request to be given favor before the king. Little side lesson here. Nehemiah prayed for days and days. And when it came to that moment when he needed to pray, he already knew exactly what to pray. He wasn't fumbling for words. Chapter, five, chapter 2, verse 5, rather. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. You notice again his deference, his respect toward the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight. And then he makes his bold request to be sent to Judah to rebuild the broken down walls and gates of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah still doesn't mention the city of Jerusalem. This is, this is just smart. Now he got a little closer. He said the city was in the province of Judah. And notice he still emphasizes the ancestral tombs to be repaired. And this is the moment of truth right here. The king still hasn't granted Nehemiah's request. And at least he hasn't killed him. That's encouraging, I suppose. But now the king shows his intention to be helpful, depending precisely on what Nehemiah was asking for. Verse 6, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Nehemiah saw that the king's decision was dependent on specifics. So Nehemiah came, gave the king an amount of time he would be gone. A little side note here. Scholars have long wondered what happened between the king and the queen who was seated next to him. 
But the fact that her presence is mentioned indicates that she had some sort of sway over the king's decision. Some little whispered back and forth right there. But the text says the queen sitting beside him. She's part of this decision. But now Nehemiah shoots for the moon. He asks for the whole ball of wax, so to speak. Verse 7, And I said to the king, insert deep breath here, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. What did he ask for? Nothing much. Just letters to say that he could do whatever he wanted, as much lumber as he wanted, and to be made governor of the region. He asked for letters of protection as he passed through the nations hostile to the Jews. He asked for a letter to Asaph, a Jew who was the keeper of the king's forest, to give him all the lumber he needed. And that lumber was for three purposes. Build a fortress to protect the temple. It was to be used to hold up the stone walls during construction and to build the governor's house, which Nehemiah would live in personally as the governor for a time. Now, did you notice once again that the theme running through all of Ezra and Nehemiah is the faithfulness of God? Yes, God has granted Nehemiah's uh, request through the king. But Nehemiah knows this is because, he says it again, of the good hand of God. Ezra 7.9, the good hand of God. Ezra 8.18, the good hand of God. Well, now we fast forward to Nehemiah's actual departure from the city of Susa and traveling through toward Jerusalem and toward Judah. And at least two leaders of the surrounding nations are not happy with this at all. Chapter 2, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. The king ensured Nehemiah's safety and asserted that Nehemiah was coming by the king's authority by sending a small military contingent to go with Nehemiah. Now, if you think back to Ezra's return, Ezra chapter 8, you might recall that when Ezra was returning, he did the opposite. He refused any military help because he needed to show that God was protecting them. But Nehemiah's situation is different. Nehemiah is going to arrive to trouble. And the king's authority would have to be clearly seen. Sanballat was the governor of the people of Samaria to the north. This is different than the Samaritans that would be living there in Jesus' day. This is a different people. And Tobiah was an Ammonite official to the east of Jerusalem. These were evil men because all men who oppose Israel are characterized in Scripture as evil. And these men are going to do all they can to stop Nehemiah, king's edict or not. Well, now Nehemiah is going to need to inspect the situation. But he's not going to reveal his plan yet. He felt it was better not to tip his hand, so to speak, until he knew everything that was involved. He had general information. He knew that the wall was broken down, the gates were burned, but he needed to see it for himself. Chapter 2, verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. 
There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I returned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Now, why would Nehemiah keep his thinking, keep his planning to himself at this stage? I mean, he came all this way, 900 miles to perform this task. He even kept his plan from the very highest Jewish officials in Jerusalem. Why would he keep this a secret at this point? Remember in verse 10, Tobiah, the wicked Ammonite who immediately opposed Nehemiah. Turn just a couple pages to Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 17. Nehemiah 6, verse 17. Why would Nehemiah keep this a secret? Nehemiah 6, verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent me letters to make me afraid. What does this mean? It means that blood is thicker than water that some of the nobles and their families had intermarried with Tobiah and his family. Now you see why that's a problem. Tobiah's family had intermarried with the families of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah had to be shrewd. He had to be wise and not reveal his intentions until he was able to get some broad support. So he goes riding alone on one animal. He just has a couple of men with him. He started at the southeastern corner of the wall going around the southern end until the wall was so broken down that he couldn't get by it. Now he knows the extent of the repairs that are needed. And he goes back in the middle of the night and doesn't say anything. Now he knew exactly what needed to be done, and it was massive. And knowing that opposition would come from outside the Jews and opposition would come from inside, from the nobles and some of the leaders, instead of just gathering the few leaders who were included in this opposition He gathered all the people, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials. And to all of them, he gave his proposal to rebuild. Why would he do this? Because if he kept his intentions private by just trying to gain support from people who would never support him, the project would never have seen the light of day. And now we see the fruition. We've done the prayer part and the planning part. Now we see the result Prayer and planning provides the pathway to providence. Here is the providence of God working. Chapter 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. 
Nehemiah met with everybody. This implies a meeting of thousands of people. You meet with 10 people and six of them are opposed to you. This thing dies in committee, so to speak. But you meet with thousands of people and six people are against you. They're going to be overwhelmed by the will of the people. So we encourage the people that God's hand of providence had been with them and that the king had paved the way for this project. And the people as a whole rightly responded to this challenge to do the work of God. It was going against the grain of what the influential surrounding leaders wanted, but they had to stay silent. There's a very important lesson here that's worth taking a small digression to consider, and I want to take some time to do this. The church at Jesus Christ will at times be plagued by those who want to please the powerful more than they want to please God. I've heard this more times than I care to think about. There's a double-edged phrase that's often used in church settings to describe certain people or certain families. They're said to be, and the phrase is, influential. This isn't inherently bad. It's not inherently good. It's just a word. The biblical definition of influential is that of a godly leader who either leads by virtue of his office or by virtue of setting a powerful and godly example that that you're influential because of how you live your life. That's the kind of influential that makes a church healthy and strong. But in my estimation in the church, more often than not, influential has overtones of don't displease this person because they're friends with lots of church members or they give a lot or they're related to somebody who's a leader. That that's what influential tends to mean. Instead, the shepherds of Christ's church are to do what is right before the Lord, never to show partiality because someone has positioned themselves as influential. This is why Paul's admonition in Philippians 2 is so important for the church If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There is in recent church history an event which illustrates this exact dynamic that Nehemiah was dealing with here. Opposition from both outside and inside to what God had laid on his heart. What I'm going to relate to you here is public knowledge. There's been podcasts, book chapters, articles written on this event. It's completely public. But it happened in the, in the ministry of John MacArthur. and It happened in the fall of 1979. It's been nicknamed Black Tuesday. It happened during the usual Tuesday staff meeting in which nearly all of the staff emboldened by some lay elders, essentially told Jay Mack that they were sick of him and his ministry. And particularly, they demanded that he share the pulpit more with all of them. They wanted more for themselves, and they felt empowered by manipulative lay elders to make demands. This was not a friendly meeting. In fact, it was unfriendly to the point of telling him, if you think we're your friends, you have another thing coming. Unfortunately, this thing is not this sort of thing is not uncommon. I have personally counseled with numerous pastors blindsided by their own leadership. But apparently, Dr. MacArthur took a page from the example of Nehemiah because instead of having a bunch of private unknown meetings to resolve the situation, he preached a sermon series, bold and hard-hitting for two Sunday mornings and two Sunday evenings to the whole church. You ready for this for a sermon series title, How to Destroy Grace Church? 
He didn't reveal so much detail so as to slander any individual person. And yet he revealed enough to be able to share the burden with the whole church. But it is the most bluntly honest series of messages to a church about the same church I've ever heard. It's powerful and it's convicting and in many ways instilling a terror of ever putting personal interests above Christ's agenda. And his basic point for four messages was that when personal desire and jealousy and power become more important than pleasing the Lord of the church, then that church, figuratively speaking, can be burnt to the ground in a matter of weeks or months. Just for your information, in the years following, every one of the men involved in that rebellion repented and restored relationship. So we praise the Lord for that. But that's almost unheard of to take the challenge to the entire church. And yet that's exactly what Nehemiah did here. He didn't have little private meetings with his hat in his hand with all of his opponents saying, I, I really hope that you'll see that God is calling me to do this. No, he just said, let's get everybody together. Let's let them know what God is doing. Unheard of. So he has this meeting. But there were tattletales present. Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. How the people of God need leaders who will determine to stand for God's will and exclude those who refuse to do so. When the wicked influential don't get their way, what do they do? They gather supporters. Now Sanballat and Tobiah are now joined by Geshem the Arab who control the region south of Jerusalem, an important region. And like all wicked men trying to thwart God's work, they try to intimidate and to threaten. But Nehemiah's response was simply to place all credit, all glory, all honor at the feet of God and proclaim that God would be with them. And I want you to know this here. There's no invitation from Nehemiah. There's no, hey, let's just all try to get along. No, he says, you have no rights in this place. And in fact, this little word here, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. That's a word that means nobody will even remember you here. Pretty stiff. But what a victory. And what a delight to see a godly man standing for what God would have him to do despite opposition. So what does this mean for you? That prayer and planning provide the pathway to providence. I'd like to give you three applications related to growing in Christ-likeness, the road to the cross, and the road to Christ's coming kingdom. We try to hit these three every time in Ezra and Nehemiah. How do we grow in Christ-likeness from this? One of the greatest joys in the Christian life is seeing the work of the Lord, to seeing God move in your life of looking back and seeing how God moved and worked even through pain and suffering and and questions and anxiety about certain things in your life. And you look back and you see that God was working all along. I think we've all had those moments of remembering that the providence of God is a delight when you look back on a difficult situation and see the good hand of God upon you all throughout. What one theologian called a, oh yeah, duh, God was moving moment. If you will be in prayer and if you will make wise plans to the best of your ability, what does that equal? It equals peace and contentment. 
Listen to the words of our beloved brother, Charles Spurgeon. He wrote this. How pleasant to float along the stream of providence. There is no more blessed way of living than a life of dependence upon a covenant-keeping God. We have no care, for He careth for us. We have no troubles because we cast our burdens upon the Lord. Did you catch that? How pleasant to float along the stream of providence. And what about the road to the cross? How does Nehemiah 1 and 2 get us there? To come after Christ, Jesus said, you must take up your cross and follow Him. Mark 8, 34. As a Christian, you will not only encounter evil, you will attract it. You will attract spiritual attack if you're endeavoring to live faithfully. Nehemiah never backed down, but instead he followed the principle found in Romans 12, 21 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 that we overcome evil and the disasters that come with evil with what? We overcome evil with good. That's not just speaking of doing nice things to evil people. That's not what it's talking about. That when evil people do evil, you do good in response. You do the things God would have you to do. You don't stop. You continue to press forward to do good, to do what's right before the Lord, first through prayer and then through planning. And you will see the providence of God at work. And if your prayer and if your planning are genuinely for the honor and the glory of Christ, then you can expect to see the Lord moving in wondrous ways. You should expect that. And in reality, the effective and faithful Christian life should be characterized by being able to tell more and more stories of the faithfulness of God about how you prayed and about how you planned and about how you prayed over the fact that your first plan didn't work and then how you prayed again and then you planned some more and how God's care and wisdom shone through your life over and over again. Every one of you near the end of your life should be able to write an autobiography entitled How Prayer and Planning Provided the Pathway of Providence. Every one of you. And what about the road to Christ's coming kingdom? I don't know about you, but there is an element of injustice and indignation in this story that Nehemiah, a man who follows the living God who created all things, has to ask humble permission from a pagan king to do something as simple as rebuild a wall. But it's not always going to be that way. Isaiah chapter 59 speaks of the second coming, the Messiah, beginning in verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. For He will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and the Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. And when the Redeemer comes to Zion, when Christ the Messiah comes to Jerusalem, what will happen? Isaiah 61 verse 4 says, They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities. The devastations of many generations. This time not because God providentially behind the scenes worked in the heart of a pagan king, but because the king of all the kings decrees it and he's there. He's arrived and he is rebuilding his city, Jerusalem, 
and it shall be rebuilt. As a matter of fact, Psalm 24 personifies, brings to life, as it were, ancient city gates as being those who watch for and are happy for and, and long to see the king coming into the city. Psalm 24, verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. This is a far cry from a pagan Persian king calling the shots, isn't it? Now, in the unseen providence of God, the walls and the gates that would be rebuilt under Nehemiah would also be destroyed. They would be destroyed by Rome in A.D. 70. And what that tells us is is that only when the true king returns will Jerusalem be rebuilt fully and permanently for good. And that's the hope we cling to, the setting up of the true kingdom under the true king. So what do we do in the meantime? Pray and plan and float along on the stream of providence. Let's pray. Our Father, we're stuck in this world that is a difficult place and the longer we walk with Christ the more we long to be home the more we long to be rid of the burdens that we bear here and yet we have this glorious opportunity you are writing the story of your glory and our lives each and every day I pray Lord for each person hearing this to have the courage to pray big and bold prayers that are within the realm of your will, prayers that glorify you and bring all honor to you. I pray that they have the courage to plan and to be as wise as they possibly can and to do all that they can to make the plans you would lay on their hearts to come to fruition. But ultimately, Lord, you're building in us faith for that day when faith will become sight. And so I pray for each person hearing this, each person in this room, each person listening online, Lord, that they would be overcome and overwhelmed by a a tremendous sense of peace and contentment that as they pray and as they plan, your providence will win every time. And that you will do exactly what you have sovereignly decreed, worked out through their prayers and plans. And that at the end of all things, we will look back and marvel at your wisdom and be in wonder and in awe at your mighty sovereignty. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.